Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the first season of Um Talha Speaks in which we will seek to gain reward of praying 1,100 rak'ahs. In each episode, we'll learn an ayah of the Qur'an and a chapter of Islamic knowledge to be in compliance with the hadith of the Prophet والسلام, where he said, O oh Abu Dhar, for you to go out and learn one ayah of the Book of Allah is more rewardable for you than praying 100 optional rak'ahs. And for you to go out and learn one chapter of Islamic knowledge is more rewardable for you than praying 1,000 optional rak'ahs. Through this season, we will cover the basic foundations of Islam with the understanding that all of these topics have many more details that are learned in appropriate sessions of knowledge. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the ability to be amongst those that know and understand the religious knowledge and not amongst those who don't understand. In this episode, inshallah, we'll discuss the significance of the pilgrimage of Al-Hajj, which is compulsory upon every Muslim who is able at least once in their life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Ayah 97 of Surah Al-Imran, وَلِلَّهِ عَلَى النَّاسِ حِجُّ الْبَيْتِ مَنِ اسْتَطَاعَ إِلَيْهِ سَبِيلًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a right upon the people for them to make hajj if they're able to. So this condition is restricted for those who religiously are classed as able and ability here can either be physical ability or it can be financial ability. So if those conditions aren't met, then religiously a person is not classed as being able to perform hajj. So they might have the money, but they may not physically be able to go, in which case it's not an obligation on them themselves to go. And they may be physically able to make hajj, but they can't afford it. In that situation, hajj is not compulsory upon them. Hajj is usually described as a spiritual journey. Surely the person takes this physical journey where they usually travel far distances from their home, but the reason that they're doing it is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered them to and as a way to cleanse themselves. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned in the hadith that the person who completes a valid hajj they go to Hajj when they were 
able to do so. They used halal money to get there. And they didn't have unlawful sexual intercourse during Hajj, which inshallah we'll speak about in just a little bit. So they didn't have unlawful sexual intercourse and they didn't commit any enormous sins during that journey. The Prophet ﷺ says the person leaves this Hajj just as they were born into this world, meaning that their sins are completely erased. So the merit of the Hajj and the blessings from the Hajj are what aren't found in other acts of worship. Even though on a daily basis, the best act that a person can do is the obligatory prayer. The obligatory prayer doesn't wipe out all of a person's previous sins in the way that Hajj does. So Hajj is a very special journey that a person undergoes truly for a spiritual cleansing with the hope that inshallah they leave from their Hajj with no sins with their sins completely wiped out. And this is a promise from the Prophet ﷺ, and his word is true. During Hajj, there are certain acts that a person must do, and these are termed fara'id and wajibat. These are integrals and requisites of the Hajj. These are things that the Hajj has to have complete. But there are also things in Hajj that are specifically prohibited for the person who has started his Hajj. Now, before we discuss exactly what those are, if we backtrack a bit and think about religiously, what are some of the behaviors and mannerisms that are rewardable for Muslims, that are sunnah for Muslims? If we talk about the man first, because within Hajj, there are differences between the man and the woman. So for the man, it's generally sunnah for him to wear a hat on his head, whether it's a, a kufi or a topi or a qalansuwa, it's sunnah for him to cover his head. Um, it's also sunnah for him to perfume himself um, with oil and utur. It's sunnah to be conscious of clipping the fingernails at certain times, um, to neat in the beard and, and things like that in general, looking after a person's appearance without being um, extravagant or over the top. But usually the person is inclined to look after his appearance. And in terms of the woman, if we talk about usually what is better for the woman to do from a religious perspective, it's better for her to cover her face, to wear a niqab, obviously out of seeking the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's better for her religiously to cover her hands, um, so to wear gloves. These are generally things that for the woman from a religious perspective, these are things that are better for her. In Hajj, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically prohibits these matters. The Hajj journey is for a person to drop what they're normally focused on in this world, completely drop it. It's haram for the man to cover his head during hajj. It's haram to wear perfume during hajj. It's haram for the man to wear clothes that 
are like regular clothes, a t-shirt and pants and jeans and a jubba, an abaya, a thobe, any of these things that normally it's good for the man to wear. In hajj, everybody wears the same two pieces of clothes in a way that you cannot differentiate between the king of a country, the president of a country, and a person who's cleaning the masjid. Everybody at the time of Hajj looks the same. And everybody is there for the same reason, for the expiation of the sins that they know they carry. So when a person really reflects on the journey that they take in Hajj, they're doing all of these things and they're leaving out all of what naturally comes to a human to take care of their appearance and worry about how they look and are people going to want to come near them. And each person has come to Hajj with the knowledge of their own sins and they have come solely for the expiation of those sins. Believing the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that if the person truly exits from this act of worship, doing it in a proper way, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive all of his sins. So at that point, with that level of honesty to oneself and that level of sincerity, it doesn't matter what a person's job is. It doesn't matter which country a person's from. It doesn't matter how many cars a person has in their driveway or how many zeros are at the end of their bank account because each person is there admitting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they have sins and that he truly is the only one who can forgive those sins. So each Muslim goes and begs Allah with no other concern in the world for forgiveness and for expiation of their sins. Before discussing exactly how Hajj is performed, it's important to understand that Mecca, where Hajj is performed, has had significance in history since the time of Prophet Adam So Prophet Adam was the first to build the Kaaba, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran that the first place that was built for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was the Kaaba. And this was built by Prophet Adam. But throughout history, the Kaaba has been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. So we find in many of the different stories of the various prophets that there's discussion about Mecca. There's discussion about the Kaaba because it has always been significant. It has always been important throughout mankind, throughout history, with various different prophets. So when we go through and discuss the different actions of Hajj, we'll talk about them in the order that they actually happen in Hajj, but the stories from history that they relate to or that they replicate aren't necessarily in chronological order. Um, so inshallah, once we go through and um, clarify that it'll become a bit clearer but first it's important to understand that the Kaaba where Hajj is performed Mecca where Hajj is performed this is the holiest land on the earth and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed this land the prophets many prophets have been there um, lived there and 
we know that there are great blessings within Mecca. After a person has decided that they are actually going to embark on this Hajj journey, they make their intention to enter the state of Ihram, to now be in the acts of Hajj and make everything that is haram for them to do during the time of Hajj haram for them. Usually this takes place on the plane as a person is crossing into Saudi Arabia, for example, or if they're coming from the direction of Medina, they stop at a specific masjid um, and make their intention from there. So it's not that when a person sets their money aside to make hajj or they pay the travel agent, then all of a sudden they're not allowed to cut their nails or not allowed to cut their hair. This is not how it is. The person specifically makes their intention close to the time for hajj. Um, so usually on the 7th of Dhul Hijjah, the 8th of Dhul Hijjah, 9th of Dhul Hijjah, um, they'll make their intention that this is actually when they will start Hajj. Um, and usually the way that it happens is that the person will come from the airport. Most people will land in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia, and they will have already entered into the state of Ihram um, either at their transit in their layover um, or on the plane. So they'll be already wearing their clothes for Hajj and they'll go directly to the Kaaba. They'll go directly to the Kaaba and make Tawaf. Um, this is called Tawaf al-Qudum. This is their first Sunnah Tawaf that they do out of respect for the Kaaba. And it's mentioned that the dua of the person who first sees the Kaaba is answered. So it's a very emotional time for the person who, who first sees the Kaaba. And as much as we see pictures and we hear stories, nothing gives the feeling of the person who actually sees the Kaaba for the first time with their own eyes. Um, usually in that time as well, the person will perform Umrah, which is a lesser pilgrimage, um, which takes less time and they're not restricted in which days they're allowed to do it. So they'll usually do that um, a, a few days prior to the Hajj actually starting. Now the Hajj starts on the 9th of Dhul Hijjah, which is the day before Eid al-Fitr. And Hajj starts by them going to Arafah. And this is just a vast open land that Muslims must gather on, on the 9th of Dhul Hijjah on that day. And this is where the Prophet ﷺ gave what is known as his farewell speech. Um, this was a very important speech that the Prophet ﷺ gave in his last Hajj that he completed. Um, so the people stay at that land of Arafah. Um, so most people will stay right up until Maghrib time and then leave, go from Arafah to a place called Muzdalifa where they stay the night. And it's recommended to pick up stones in Muzdalifa and the person would usually take 70 stones. Then they make their way back to Mecca. And now is when they perform the Fard Tawaf, 
and this is the tawaf that is actually part of Hajj. So this is to go around the Kaaba seven times, um, counterclockwise with the person's left shoulder facing the Kaaba. And this is always how tawaf is performed. And it's mentioned actually that when the Ark of Prophet Nuh was floating um, on earth, the Ark itself actually went around the Kaaba seven times. Well, the Kaaba would have been destroyed by that point, um, but went around that area seven times. So this has been significant in history, um, and the Muslims do that. Then immediately once they finish Tawaf, um, they walk just a few steps to the edge of the Kaaba and perform what is called a Sa'i. And this is a specific walk between what used to be two mountains. Um, the mountains now have kind of been filled in. Um, the space between the mountains has been filled in and there's been a lot of building going on around them. Um, but originally these were two mountains and between them was a valley. And each Muslim needs to go between these two mountains seven times. And this is replicating what Lady Hajjah did when Prophet Ibrahim left her with their very young son. And at that time, Mecca was completely barren. There was no people there. There was no water there, nothing. But out of the order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he left Lady Hajar with their small son, Ismail, in this desert. And when she ran out of water, she went between these two mountains searching for water for her son. And she went seven times between Al-Safa and Al-Marwa. And when she would get in the middle, if we can imagine, there's a woman with a very young child, no food and no water, desperately looking for any sign of water. But she's alone. So when she gets to the middle of the valley where she can't see anything, she starts to run. Desperate, desperate, looking for some sort of salvation. And after completing seven times, an angel came and struck the ground and out sprung water. And this is what we know as the well of Zamzam. This wasn't here prior to this incident, um, but this well still exists now and water still comes from it and millions of Muslims drink from it. But this was a blessing for Lady Hajjad and a blessing for the Muslims. After Asari, the person would also ensure that an animal is slaughtered on their behalf and this is replicating Another story of Prophet Ibrahim السلام, where he was ordered to slaughter his son. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent as revelation in a dream of Prophet Ibrahim that he saw himself killing his son. So the prophets, when they see dreams like this, they know that this is revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is an order for them to carry out whatever it was that they saw in their dreams. So this is what he understood. Um, and the prophets are very quick 
to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he took his son and at that point, his son Ismail was of the understanding that he was taking him to go search for firewood. And the devil came to him and said, do you know where your dad's taking you? He's taking you to kill you. And Ismail said, no, we're going to get wood. And he said, oh, the devil said to him, oh, he says that this is an order from Allah. So look at Prophet Ismail. Someone is here telling him that your father is going to kill you. But what does he say? He says, if this is an order from Allah, if he says this is an order from Allah, then this is actually an order from Allah. So I will follow him in that. So they get to Mina, which is a specific section in um, just outside of Mecca. And this is usually where the slaughtering takes place. Um, Prophet Ibrahim السلام, instructed his son to lay down. And as he put the knife to his throat, it didn't cut. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent in his place a sheep, which Prophet Ibrahim slaughtered instead. So in replicating this act of Prophet Ibrahim with his son Ismail, the Muslims slaughter during Hajj um, and feed the poor Muslims with that sheep. Or um, So this is also conducted after um, a sari, and then the person will shave their head. And after they've shaved their head, then most of the things that are haram for them to do during Hajj are now perfectly valid for them. They can wear perfume, they can cut their nails, they can wear regular clothes, um, only a few certain things. Um, they still have to wait until they've thrown the stones, um, things like. So all of these issues, the tawaf, the sari, the slaughtering, um, shaving the head, these generally take place on Eid day, on the 10th of Dhul Hijjah. And on that day, the Muslims as well, the hujjaj, those who are performing hajj, go to Mina. And there are three stations there, three massive pillars that they throw stones at. On this day, they only throw stones at the last station. This is called Jamratul Aqaba, and this is the only place that they th throw stones on this day. And this is replicating what happened with, again, Prophet Ibrahim um, When he was in Mina, the devil came to him at three different places, and he threw stones at the devil um, to to try to get him away from him, to tell the devil that I'm rejecting whatever it is that you're saying. So out of replicating the rejection that Prophet Ibrahim السلام, had for the devil, we throw stones to show we as well reject the whispers of the devil and the deviation of the devil. We don't actually believe that when we're throwing the stones that we're actually throwing them at the devil. Um, this is replicating what Prophet Ibrahim did. And these stones that we throw at these stations, these are the actual stones that we would have picked up in Muzdalifah after being at Arafah on our way to perform at Tawaf the previous night. So the 10th of Dhul Hijjah, we go and throw 
stones at the last station on and then we stay the night in Mina. Um, so usually there's tents in Mina that are dedicated for various countries or various localities. And in these three days, the movement of traffic is usually from Mina to the stations and back to the tents. So the 10th of Dhul Hijjah, we're throwing just at one station. The 11th of Dhul Hijjah, we're throwing at all three stations, and this is throwing seven stones at each station. So the first day we've used seven stones. The second day we used 21. The th now this is the 12th of Dhul Hijjah. Again, we'll throw 21 stones. And the 13th of Dhul Hijjah, we throw 21 stones. So in total, we throw 70 stones across four days, the 10th of Dhul Hijjah, which is Eid Day, the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th, and these are known as the days of Tashriq. This concludes the acts of Hajj, and usually after this, the person will make another Tawaf, which is known as Tawaf al-Wada'a, or the farewell Tawaf, and this is usually the last thing that the person does before they leave Mecca, and they'll usually from this point travel to Al-Madinah where the Prophet ﷺ is buried and the Masjid of the Prophet is and um, many of the companions are buried. So this is usually part of the journey that those who make Hajj uh, make a point to do. But if we think about Hajj itself, it really only is four days five at the most if the person delays their throwing until quite late in the day but we have the ninth of Dhul Hijjah which is being at Arafah the tenth of Dhul Hijjah which is Eid day and that's when we perform Tawaf and Sa'i and slaughter and cut and shave the head then we throw on the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th. So across five days is really when all of the acts of Hajj are complete. So the prohibitions of Hajj, it's really not that much time that the person isn't allowed to wear regular clothes or perfume themselves or have sexual intercourse with their wife or get married or other things that are prohibited in Hajj. If the person is able to restrain themselves across these five days and not fall into any enormous sins across these five days, the Prophet ﷺ has promised that this person will leave Hajj with no sins. One of the rules pertaining to Hajj um, that's a little bit different to the other obligations of praying and fasting and paying zakah is that when Hajj becomes an obligation in that a person is physically and financially able to perform Hajj, they don't have to do it right then. And they don't have to do it in that year. They don't even have to do it in the next two years or five years as opposed to praying, for example. When praying is an obligation on a person, they have to pray then. 
They can't wait until that prayer time goes out. They can't wait until the next day when Ramadan starts and it's an obligation on a person to fast Ramadan. They don't say, okay, well, I'll wait until next Ramadan to do it. They're not allowed to. They have to do it then. But with Hajj, if a person is physically and financially able to do it, they are allowed to delay it. But if they die after being obligated to perform Hajj and they didn't do it, this is sinful for them. And money must be taken from their inheritance to perform Hajj on their behalf. So even though it might be the case that we have a sense of security about our life, we don't feel about ourselves that we are sick and might die this year, so let's hurry up and make Hajj. But truly, we don't know. None of us have been guaranteed to live until the next Hajj. None of us have been guaranteed to get a visa two or three years down the road. None of us have been guaranteed to know that Hajj will, will be open, that the Kaaba will be open two and three and five years from now. So when Hajj becomes an obligation on a person from a religious perspective, it's best for them to do it straight away out of security for their own heart and peace of mind with their own acts of worship that they know that they have completed it. But also from a health perspective that much of the acts of Hajj involve a lot of physical strength and for the person to delay Hajj until they're 60, 65, 70, 75 years old, it's very difficult for the person to really focus on their acts of worship. They're more concerned about finding a wheelchair. They're more concerned about finding a bathroom. They're more concerned about finding a place to get drinking water so that they can take their medication. And, and, and it's not the same sense of focus that a person is able to devote to this extremely important act of worship when, as they can when they're younger, when they have less responsibilities, when they have less concerns. So it truly is advisable for the one who is able to perform Hajj as soon as they can. We find ourselves able to save for a car. We find ourselves able to save to remodel the bathroom or to add an extension or to redo the loft. But when it comes to Hajj, it's almost as if that's the last thing that we'll do. It shouldn't be this way because redoing the loft is an expiation for our sins. Buying a new refrigerator and new cooker and new microwave and tiling the kitchen floor, that's not an expiation for our sins. The Prophet ﷺ promised the person who performs a valid hajj without having invalid sexual intercourse and without having committed any sins for an expiation of all of their previous sins. When a person dies, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 would be nothing 
in comparison to what they would be willing to pay for all of their sins to be forgiven. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to facilitate for us the journey of Hajj to fulfill this obligation if it's an obligation on us and for us to repeat it if we have already performed it. Walhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.